0: This week on Monday, I visited the doctor. Finding a new primary care physician is one of those many little tasks of moving to a new city. We were talking about my medical history, which is itself a a short novel and many sermons, but (laughs) that's not today. But I mentioned in the conversation that I used to live in Baltimore. A little while later in the, in the visit, he, he paused and qu- looked sideways at me and said, You lived in Baltimore. Is Baltimore really like The Wire? <laughs> or is it nice? <laughs> Here's the thing I love The Wire. It's portrayal of education, politics, urban life in the midst of the war on drugs. David Simon, who wrote it, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist for the Baltimore Sun for years before he went into TV. There ain't no war on drugs, one police officer says to another. Wars end. And it's also an HBO show. (laughs) Murders are episodic. Corruption is rampant. The parts of Baltimore that run smoothly and well are a positive part of civic life are not part of the portrait the wire paints. A day at the Enoch Pratt Free Library does not make for compelling television. (laughs) In The Wire, the bad guys are almost always black. Baltimore will always be dear to me, the the city that I came home to after Peace Corps, the city I joined, a Unitarian Universalist church, the city where I met my wife, the school district I worked with. There's a sign in my office that says, love more, be more. The artist is a friend of a friend. The occasion for that sign was the protests in the aftermath of the death of Freddie Gray. A young black man who was killed by a ride in the back of a Baltimore City Police Department van. Is it like The Wire or is it nice? I stumbled answering that question. It's strange to think of the complexity of the city I love that is so often reduced to, to just a name, just a TV show, an event. Baltimore, Ferguson, Charlottesville. We speak the names of these places in the abstract as shorthand because it's, it's hard to hold the complexity of what they are known for and what they are, hard to, hard to talk about what connects them. Race in America. In each of those places, the culture of white supremacy was glimpsed for a moment. Conversation about race has been growing in Unitarian Universalism over the past two or three years. It burst into general notice this spring with a fairly straightforward observation. The Unitarian Universalist Association, the UUA, claims to be committed to dismantling racism and implicit bias. There are six regions in the UUA in the country. There are six regional lead positions. All six are held by white ministers. This became the presenting problem in a controversy that has resulted in the resignation of the UUA president and several members of senior leadership in Boston. Of course, one of the lessons I learned in the hospital is that the presenting problem is often not the problem. The presenting problem is a symptom of some underlying cause. The fact that all six regional leads in the UUA were white ministers is a symptom of a culture that repeatedly, in ways implicit and explicit, centers the experience of white folks as normal. This is the underlying thing in the culture that we mean when we talk about white supremacy. Not just the overt racism on display in Charlottesville a few weeks ago, but the the cumulative result of tens of thousands of interactions, moments of bias that happen over years. Just today, we could have easily introduced Mark Morrison-Reed as one of the premier black historians of race and religion in America. I did not identify David Simon as a white investigative journalist. The fact that it would have been strange in one way, but not the other. Many times we do this without thinking sets up whiteness as the norm anything else as the exception. This is not just an issue of language. Centering whiteness in this way diminishes the dignity of people of color. This has consequences from hiring practices to how the Baltimore City Police Department treated Freddie Gray. And it is because of this that we proclaim in these spaces that despite Evidence on the Evening News, Black Lives Matter. This is what the teaching was about last spring. I understand that you did that here along with five or six hundred congregations around the UUA. It was to increase our awareness and understanding of the logic of white supremacy, how without knowing we can so often center whiteness. This has been wrapped into our churches, entangled in our culture in ways that will take decades of sustained effort to change. So, if the diagnosis is white supremacy, what might be the fix? One proposal from within our own association is to adopt an eighth principle to be included in Article 2 of the UUA bylaws, hang with me for just a second. Article one establishes that our name is the Unitarian Universalist Association. Article two contains the heart of our shared faith, the covenant we commit to as congregations within the Unitarian Universalist Association. Included are the preamble, including the preamble. The proposal adds the following text. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Many of us gathered this summer in New Orleans for General Assembly and and in New Orleans, the UUA's board of trustees committed to appoint a commission at the board's October meeting to review article two of the UUA bylaws. This is the principles, sources and purposes of the association. That commission will return with recommended changes at the General Assembly next summer in Kansas City. I would be shocked given the congregation, conversation in New Orleans if some form of this eighth principle wasn't put on the table for discussion. Kansas City is right down the road as General Assemblies go and it is my hope that the Unitarian Church of Lincoln will be well represented there. So, Let's start the conversation now so that we can be ready to vote in June. I've been talking about article two. Article two is important for governance walks within the UUA of which I am one. But what we're really talking about is in addition to the seven principles that we know well that are established and known to us. It's worth talking a little bit about what those principles are, what they mean. When the Unitarians and Universalists merged in the early 60s, there was a decision made that said that this new thing, the Unitarian Universalist Association, will not be creedal. There will be no statement of this is what Unitarian Universalists believe. What eventually merged decades later was a covenant between congregations, between churches, fellowship societies, covenanting with each other, committing to promote seven principles, and recognizing five, and later six, sources. The seven principles are a covenant. We covenant to affirm and promote. Changing the language of a covenant is a complicated task. To my knowledge, uh, there have been only two changes to the principles and sources since they were adopted in 1985. In 1996, a sixth source was added, recognizing the deep connection that many Unitarian Universalists have with Earth-centered traditions. And this past summer in New Orleans, to change the language of one of the principles, one of the sources, I'm sorry, from men and women to people. So changing the seven principles to eight would be a major shift. It's the equivalent in our relatively small association of a constitutional amendment. It would place a commitment to dismantling racism and other oppressions at the core of the covenant that Unitarian Universalist congregations have with each other. It is a very big deal. The most common argument against this, the adoption of an eighth principle, is that it would be redundant. The UUA committed itself in the 1990s to anti-racism. The the language of our first principle recognizes that all people have inherent worth and dignity. And immediately after the sources, in the bylaws, in Article 2, comes a statement on inclusion, which reads... Systems of power, privilege, and oppression have traditionally created barriers for persons and groups with particular identities, ages, abilities, and histories. We pledge to replace such barriers with ever-widening circles of solidarity and mutual respect. We strive to be an association of congregations that truly welcomes all persons and commits to structuring congregational and associational life in ways that empower and enhance everyone's participation. That already is there. That is in Article 2. We are committed to that. But the reply is often that while we have these very fine statements and commitments in place, we have reached a point, regardless of what we say, we have reached a point where people of color are underrepresented in leadership where the most prestigious and often highest-paying pulpits are held by white male ministers. Clearly, the argument goes, our commitments are insufficient. If this disagreement sounds familiar, it's because it happens over and over again in different places. It might. You might recognize it as an echo of arguments for and against the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. Opponents say equal protection under the law is well established. Proponents point to wage disparities and election results as evidence that sexism is real and must be addressed explicitly. An entirely different line of reasoning and one that I personally find compelling is being developed by Reverend Tom Shade. Tom's a retired minister in Michigan and has strong feelings about the need to develop an explicit public theology of Unitarian Universalism, a theology that we use to explain the world as it is and our response to it. He writes that the seven principles as written do not describe what opposes them. They are sunny. They are utopian. Their shadow side, though, is our self-righteousness, which follows directly from the principle's one-sidedness. They do not name why they are not universally practiced, why we ourselves fail them so often. After all, if we have such high ideals, then we must be the good ones. And those who don't agree must, therefore, be the bad ones. This is a rich idea. Our principles tell us that we all have inherent worth and dignity, that we are bound up in an interconnected web, free and responsible to find truth and meaning in life. I would love to live in that world. They describe the world that we want to build, the world as it ought to be, but they stumble in reflecting the world as it is. By naming racism and other oppressions as systems, systems that we all participate in whether we mean to or not, systems that must be dismantled, the eighth principle identifies explicitly what stands between us and our high ideals. This does not make the goals any less utopian. A world of inherent dignity, the democratic process, the right of conscience, upholding a world community without racism or oppression. That is still a few years down the road. But it does help us help point us to the right road. A teacher of mine once told me that faith is that which you believe despite all evidence to the contrary. (laughs) I believe that Freddie Gray had inherent worth and dignity despite what the Baltimore City Police Department says. I believe that Baltimore is a great city, despite questions that I get about the wire. And I know that I love Baltimore both for the city that it is and the city that it could be. This sermon, I hope, is the beginning of a conversation over the next year I don't know how I'll vote in Kansas City. I don't know what the final proposal will look like. The people writing the final proposal don't know what the final proposal will look like. But I do know that we, the UUA, every congregation, myself, we have fallen short of our aspirations many times. Maybe naming the reason why we fall short is a step towards meeting them. May it be. Amen. And in the spirit of finding a new path.